You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. Today on Leaders and Legends, sponsored by Veteran Strategies, we have two very distinguished, very well-liked public servants. Former Democrat State Senator Louis Mayhern from Indianapolis, and also we have former Lieutenant Governor former state senator and former state rep, I believe, John Mutz. They're longtime friends. Uh, They've gone around and I believe more than once talked to audiences about bipartisanship and the need to work together. And they really have been present at the creation when it comes to modern Indianapolis and seeing this city and state grow. Lieutenant Governor Mutz, thank you for being here. My pleasure, Robert. It's fun to be with Louis. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much for being here. Uh, Let's start at the beginning. Do you remember kind of when you first met? You know, I don't remember the exact moment, but Louis joined the, the U.S. or the Senate. I'm going clear off the, <laughs> the subject here. Uh, and I was already there, I believe, if that's not true. And uh, uh, we became friends as we found we had mutual interests in issues. That's really how it started for us, I think. And you... Uh- Senator Mayhern, you joined in 76 is when you were elected to the I was, state Senate. I was elected in 76, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which part of Indianapolis <clears throat> did you two respectively represent? I, I represented the uh, near east side. Uh, actually, I, the, the east side of Center Township. And I represented what you would describe as the far northeast part of the county, Uh Part of the Lawrence Township and part of it was inside the old city boundary. It mentioned ideas or issues you had in common. Talk, maybe, uh, Louis Mayhern, talk a little bit about what those issues were, what you found to be in common. Well, I, I tell you, and John doesn't remember this, but but uh, <clears throat> after we had been in, after I had been in the Senate for uh, a couple of weeks, um, and I just kind of laid back and my seat, since I was a freshman, my seat was way in the back. And so I had a very good view of everything that was going on. And, um, and after a couple of weeks, you know, I decided that, uh, that um, I, I need to have a friend. <laughs> and uh, I should preface this by saying that I was a, a congressional staffer for eight years before I was elected to the Senate. So it was, I was incredibly fortunate to have that kind of legislative training as to how legislative bodies work. And I knew that, you know, the Democrats were in the majority. I knew that we weren't going to be in the majority forever. We might only be in the majority for two years, given Indiana and its conservative ways. And, and uh, so I decided I need to form a relationship with somebody on the other side who I can do business with. And uh, so I laid back for a couple of weeks and I came to the conclusion that uh, John Mutz is, uh, he's a very bright guy. He's an articulate guy and he's not crazy, you know? <laughs> and and uh, 
And so I feel that's a compliment. Yeah. Right now. yeah. <laughs> we almost named the podcast that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I, I went up to him one time on the floor and said, uh, you know, can you have lunch sometime? So we went over to the press club and uh, I told him um, that I had a list of the bills that I had introduced. And I told him, I said, if there are any bills on here on this list that you're interested in putting your name on, let me know and I'll put your name on it. And if you have any bills that you think I might be interested in, let me know. Uh, and we, we agreed to do that. Uh, was it, was it hard to find someone to work with back then? No, really? I no, I don't. It, it wasn't. And, and actually it, it pretty much came down to a question of, which which Marion County Republican uh, <laughs> am I going to uh, approach? Because uh, Morris Mills and Larry Borst were uh, uh, pretty simpatico uh, and and pretty open minded, and um, so but but uh, you know John was a little younger than they and so when when uh, John Mutz became Lieutenant Governor in 1980 along with governor uh bob Orr, did you feel like you had bet on the right horse like man i'm i'm pretty smart here i chose the right guy back in 76 well no no i didn't think about that but uh um i mean it, and uh i i enjoyed uh working with john i enjoyed working with bob Orr. um there were there were some uh issues uh, that i worked very closely with uh, the Orr administration on particularly having to do with uh, educational reform did did was there a, Lieutenant Governor Mutz, is there a better, you hear a lot from folks who've been involved in politics for decades, and by decades I mean 40, 50, 60 years, that sort of thing, that it was different back then. They don't always quantify what back then is or identify, but just politics was different back then, relationships were different back then. Is that is that a statement with which you would agree or just say, look, politics has always been a blood sport, sometimes best, sometimes not. I would agree that there was a difference in the kind of environment that we operated in. Uh, and I would also say that there were also some times when some vicious events occurred. But, I mean, if you go back and look at the time of, of Lincoln and the stuff that they wrote and said about him, uh, he was accused of having come from the... Uh, monkeys of, of a zoo and all kinds and they of called him the original stuff. gorilla that's right and you you look at the ford theater as an exhibit in the basement of the ford theater washington dc that describes what the press said about him so the, the vicious nature of politics has been there for a long time what they said about andrew jackson when he ran in the right. 1820s yeah but the, the difference i'd say is that when I got elected to the legislature. I was part of a political movement, and we like to describe that as the action committee moment in terms of Republican politics. And our goal was to take over the Republican Party from the old-time leadership. And the old-time leadership was represented by County Chairman Dale Brown. Right. Dale Brown was a veteran of the political patronage system. Uh, he got to the point in his career in which uh, it was more important to keep his job and the patronage than it was to elect Republicans to office. So when, you, that, when were you first elected to the Indiana House? Was it part of the 66? Was it the Bulin class? 66? Yes, it was. Uh -huh. and, and so I, I was a member of, of 15 who were elected in the action committee year. 
And uh, among those are a number of people, well, not many left now, but Ray Crow, for example, the basketball the, coach mm-hmm. from Crispus Attucks. Uh, Another name I can throw out there, which is and something that he was given or, or earned, which is shocking, is Richard Guthrie. Richard Guthrie uh, was part of the class of 66. Uh, His daughter, Jennifer, and I graduated from Howe High School together. Mm -hmm. But he was elected in 1966, freshman, became Speaker of the House as a freshman. Now, that's unheard of these days. Yeah, that's before my time. I I, I knew Dick Guthrie very well, but he was not part of the the 15. Okay, good. Yeah. And uh, the point I want to make is that when we first got elected, we had a whole lot of things we wanted to do. We had a specific agenda, and we decided, well, Marion County is always the enemy of the rest of the state. You know, Indianapolis, quote, gets everything. Sure. So we need to do something about that. So we started out with the intention of making friends out in the state, and we started with other Republicans. It was an overwhelming Republican year when we won, big majority, and so there were a lot of people who were new, just like we were. Now, not everybody was new, but nearly everybody. And so we actually assigned specific legislators out in the state, and we called on them. And I re- remember one of the people that I was assigned at, uh, was in Bloomington, in, in Indiana. And uh, I remember going down and talking to him, and he, I said, well, what do you want out of the legislature? He says, just one thing. I want a road, a four-lane road between Bloomington and Indianapolis so people can get to the ball games. <laughs> and, 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 and I said, well, you know, that would require a tax increase, a gasoline tax increase. He said, oh, I know it. I, I'm with you. We'll, we'll work on that together. Well, that was an example of the kind of relationships that we tried to set up. Uh, this gentleman later became chairman of the board of Cook, Inc., in oh. Bloomington. And, and so I, I guess what I'm saying is that we went out with the idea of making friends. Now, did we intentionally make friends with Democrats? Not to start with, but this event that Louis describes here, which I admit, I do not remember the specifics of it, but I do remember session after session and moment after moment, Louis and I traded comments and ideas. And, and we did this around a lot of things. And, you know, for example, one of the things we co-sponsored was an increase in AFDC payments. Now, Aid for dependent children. That, that's right. And uh, the increase we advocated was like $20 a week or something like that. But it wasn't a lot of money. But Louie and I talked privately, and we said, this is unreasonable. We can't expect anybody to exist on this kind of money. Well, my Republican colleagues thought I had left the church. You know, it was one of those <laughs> situations in which, well, why would you get together with Democrat on that? I said, because it's the right thing to do. And, and so th- we did things like that back and forth. The White River State Park, I can name a whole lot of other things, but those are samples of things. You mentioned, and then I want to I ask Louie about his time in D.C. because he worked with two real titans of Indiana politics, Indiana public servants. What was your impression of Bulin? I mean, that book came out with him that all of us political nerds read. Yeah. Uh, what, what did you think of, of his skill, of his vision? Well, I'd have to start by saying that the action committee was not originally Bulin. It was a group of Republican office holders who had decided Dale Brown was no longer the right person to lead the party. Judge 
Circuit Judge John Niblack, uh, Noble Piercy, the prosecutor, mm. uh, the assessor, John Sutton was the auditor or treasurer. Uh, the point I make is, and one of them was Marsha Hawthorne. Now, Marsha Hawthorne is my was my mother-in-law. She passed away oh. quite some time ago. And Marsha had been in politics as a ward chairman and all that stuff for years. She ran a license branch under the old license branch system, and she got the license branch from Dale Brown. I mean, the county chairman passed those franchises out. So I, of course, talked to Marsha a lot about this. But what happened was these office holders got together and said, we got to do something that's better. Then they decided, well, who should lead the effort? And there were several names that were thrown around, but Keith really wanted to do it. He knew about it. He wasn't a member of the original group of office holders, okay. although he had been a legislator uh, four years before that. And so they decided Buellen was the guy to lead the charge. And I remember my mother-in-law saying, oh, Keith's good looking. He's a great dresser. The women will love him. <laughs> I remember her say, she said that to me. And I said, well, that isn't exactly the attributes that I see in, in Marsha, but you know, it's one of those things. So <clears throat> the result was that they picked Buellen to, to run that campaign. And the campaign was a grassroots campaign in which we elected 200 plus new precinct committeemen who we got in office for the sole purpose of throwing Dale Brown out. That was the approach. Did it, did the success, the continued success of the Marion County Republican party, late sixties, seventies, eighties through the nineties until Bart Peterson wins in 1999. Did that surprise you? Or is that just Unigov driven good candidates great mayoral leaders. Well, you have to understand that there, there was, first of all, in Bulin's approach to things, he said the first thing to do is to elect good people to office. The second thing is support them in what they do. And if they do things that are not good for the image of the party, get rid of them. I mean, that, that was his basic approach. He also was someone who said, our job is not to turn out a big vote. He says, you know, when you go to a precinct and the committee been bragged how many people have voted, that isn't what you ask. You ask how many Republicans that voted for our slate have voted. <laughs> That's the key question. And, and so uh, uh, Keith was an advocate of the old Lincoln philosophy. He says, make a list of all the voters, determine who are for you and against you, get your people to the polls, and don't worry about any of the others. And that's a— uh, allegedly attributed to, to Lincoln. Louis, you had mentioned and alluded to earlier your previous career before you became a state senator. You worked for, for really what are two of the most impactful and influential public servants in at least modern Indiana history, certainly the 20th century. Tell us a little bit about your time with Senator By and Representative Jacobs. Um, I, I spent five years on the Hill uh, and three years back here, I spent uh, <clears throat> a year working for Andy in uh, Indianapolis and then uh, and went out to uh, D.C. with him in uh, January 69. He lost to Hudnut in 72. And so 73, I went on the other side of the Capitol building and, and went to work for Birch Bay uh, for a year in Washington and then for a couple of years 
back here before I uh, left uh, to run for the Senate. Uh, they were both, uh, um, you know, <clears throat> politics is not without its temperamental people. And, uh, uh, but neither one of these guys uh, was ever that way. Neither one of them were anything but uh, kind uh, to their staff, understanding of their staff. Uh, you know, when you had to like work extra hours or you had to come back to Indiana for a week for something or other, uh, you know, Birch would call my wife and tell her how important it was that I came back here and thank her for, you know, the support and that sort of thing. Um, and, and, uh, I never saw either one of them ever lose their temper. And, and, uh, you know, I used to, tell people that you know there's an old saying that no man is a hero to his own valet and uh, <laughs> uh and i saw both of these guys up close and personal uh under sometimes trying circumstances and i never saw them lose their temper birch by lost to dan quayle in 1980 right. was probably the biggest political upset in indiana history until 2007 when uh, ballard beat bart peterson uh I don't I only bring that up because it's it's so long ago. It's thirty eight years ago, almost thirty nine years ago. Do you get the sense that Birch Bay's accomplishments, not only to Indiana and the Senate, but the country as a whole, are undervalued? Like we don't appreciate enough what Birch Bay did. Well, first of all, <clears throat> I would I would say that that uh, if you if you look at the vote totals, uh, the. Birch's loss to Dan Quayle was not so much of an upset as it was a wave election. Certainly uh, in 1980, uh, the Republicans uh, did well everywhere, yeah, uh, including uh, for Mr. Mutz. Well, and, <laughs> and uh, Ronald Reagan, you know, uh, ran extremely well in Indiana. Right. And, and uh, Birch ran, I believe, a couple of hundred thousand votes ahead of the rest of the ticket. Uh, but it was just the wave was just too much uh, for him. Um, yeah, I, yes, I think for the common person in Indiana, um, there's not that much understanding about what Birch Bay did. Uh, I mean, you know, there's people talk about the FISA court. He, he, you know, he was the author of the FISA court. He was the author of two constitutional amendments, uh, the, uh, presidential, presidential succession, succession. Go ahead, and, I'm sorry. and the 18 year old, uh, vote. Uh, he was the author of the juvenile justice act. I mean, this guy was... Uh, was it the ERA as well as my memory serving? Yes, yeah. The, Which was never passed, but was it, certainly it, it a hot was, topic it, it, in it the was, 70s and 80s. It, was, it, it passed the uh, U.S. Congress, and it fell uh, two or three states short of uh, rat mm-hmm. two of, of ratification. Uh, but, uh, but, but let me, let me add to that that uh, I think that it's just a matter of uh, public memory. Um, I, th- I think that, uh, you know, Dick Luger, who I consider to be, uh, you know, one of the great senators uh, from the state of Indiana. Uh, I-, I think it's amazing that I consider two of the greatest senators Indiana has ever had both served simultaneously. Uh, but already, I believe that if you ask people, you know, tell me about Dick Luger and what B- Dick Luger had accomplished and all that sort of thing, people would be hard pressed because, uh, you know, I worked on a Dick Luger on a Senator Luger 
he's not my friend, so I, he's he's my not my buddy. He's an acquaintance, Senator Luger Super PAC in 2012, and and while I certainly believe that that it could be said that the the Luger machine lost touch with Indiana pl- politics at the grassroots level, I think that's almost irrefutable. Uh, when people would say, well, what has he done lately? You just wanted to look at them. I'm like, do you have any idea what this man does for this state day in and day out? The credibility that he gives Indiana just by his mere presence. And I, and, and truly that was Birch by before that was Richard Luger. I mean, by, I think was elected the first time in 62. Yeah. And then he beats Luger in 74 in a close election. Mm-hmm. Were you involved with that at all? The 74 I on, election? I was, on, I was uh, on the staff, um, when that uh, when that happened, yeah. I mean, that's you rare. You get two titans going up against each other like that. Well, it was a good year for the Democrats, right? The Watergate year. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, Birch Birch was elected three times, and that was the only good year for Democrats in in which he ran. But I mean, it, it's uh, I mean, you you talk about Dick Luger's service. Um, I don't think I don't think, and, and not just to Indiana, but to the country. Uh, I, I believe there's very little understanding about the, the service that Dick Luger did in um, uh, nuclear disarmament. Exactly. And, and, and when, when the Soviet Union fell apart, there were atomic or nuclear weapons all over the Soviet Union, not just in Russia, but all over the Soviet Union. And uh, that it would have been very easy for people, for those things to have fallen into the wrong hands. And he and uh, Sam Nunn, uh, did a tremendous service for the world uh, in that and, regard. And I don't, my, as, correct me if I'm wrong, neither one received the Nobel Peace Prize, no, they which is shocking. Nominated. They were nominated, yeah. Did you, and I want to talk about Andy Jacobs here for just one second, because he's someone I got to know pretty well. He was incredibly kind and gracious to me, because as a history nut, I mean, he was a walking, like, let, let me ask you about this, or let me tell you about this. And I'll tell this very quick story because I want to hear more from you two. But I went to a fundraiser. I was invited to a fundraiser for Richard Luger in 2012. So a very tough year, a primary year in which he lost to Murdoch. On the way to the fundraiser, I went to Andy Jacobs' house over there on the west side, kind of by the art mm-hmm. museum. And he says, well, what are you going to do? We talked Civil War history and talked this or that for about an hour with these gigantic great Danes. Holy mackerel. He had the biggest, they're like horses. He says, what are you doing after this? I said, actually, I'm going to a fundraiser for Dick Luger for Senator Luger. He's in a tough fight. You know, Andy, who, if he wasn't bedridden was pretty close at that time, reached in his bedside drawer, pulled out a $20 bill. (laughs) He says, you give this to my friend, Dick Luger. So I get to the fundraiser and then uh, everyone kind of mills around then Luger speaks. And then I went to, I think it was Emily uh, Kruger, who was his uh, uh, campaign director. And I said, can I speak for like 30 seconds because after the Senator, because I think this is important and I promise it's not, and doesn't have a damn thing to do about me. And she goes, okay, sure. So after the Senator was done speaking, she says, Robert has something he'd like to give to you, Senator. And I said, I just left Andy Jacobs house. And he wanted me to give this to you. And I pulled this brand new $20 bill out of my pocket and I gave it to Senator Luger. And he had, he welled up Mm -hmm. and that's the kind of thing. And he goes, he goes, I have the utmost respect and admiration for Andy Jacobs. Mm -hmm. And he goes, please thank him for me for this. And it was kind of those weird moments in time where I just happened to be a conduit. And I just, 
it was more than the perfunctory, thank my friend. You could tell that there was a relationship there where they had worked together many, many times. Is that something, uh, Lieutenant Governor Mutz and Senator Mayhern, we're here with Veteran Strategies, Leaders and Legends. Is that something that happened a lot back then where you saw that sort of real closeness, not some sort of made up closeness for the media or for public consumption? Well, I, you know, Andy, uh, who lost to uh, Bill Hednet in 72 and then came back and defeated Hednet in 74. Um, and then later on, they, they became personal friends. Jacobs told me that one of the debates they rode together. Oh, they yeah. rode in the car together. Either H- Jacobs picked up Hudnut or Hudnut picked up Jacobs. I, I don't know about that, but I do know that when they both became older and were ill, that their two wives were very close, talked on a regular basis. And I remember calling uh, Bill Hudnut just before he died. And uh, uh, his wife told me, well, I was back in Indianapolis to see Kim. It, Kim, that's right. Kim Jayton. Right. That's it. Yeah. And, and so... Yes, the two of them had the utmost respect for each other. And I think they genuinely liked each other. See, that, that's yeah. Louie and my situation, too. We, it isn't that we just think it's nice to be right. reaching across the aisle and so we can tell people that. But we genuinely like each other. And we've done things together that are a little unusual. Yeah. And, and that was the point of the question was, you know, you can mug for the cameras and then show up at the, at the, you know, Catholic festival together and shake hands and backslap for a couple minutes. But I got the sense from talking to Congressman Jacobs, but it was just deeper. I mean, some of the language he used to describe his relationship with, uh, president HW Bush. I mean, it was almost reverent. Like I wouldn't, he wasn't my, he wasn't a guy that I thought was, you know, I would have voted for, for president or ever, but as far as just how he felt about him personally, I think that is something that is missing from today. Yeah. Or am I, John, do I have that wrong? No, I, I think you're right. Now, I will say this, that uh, there are still some friendships that crop up. You don't see very many of them between across the aisle, that is Democrat, Republican. Uh, one of the things we've been trying to do recently, the there's an association of retired legislators in Indiana now. And... Uh, this group has raised some money and has created an award for legislators from both parties who have demonstrated the ability to work in a common way about a common problem. And uh, I think if you go to the chambers today, you'll find the plaques that are on the wall. And I think they've had two uh, groups of awardees and uh, they pick a Democrat and a Republican for each house uh, for a session and make the award. Now, sometimes there aren't any, (laughs) so so you can't do it blank. Yeah. But, but, uh, it's one of those things. They asked me to come and speak at the award ceremony. They held it in the Supreme court chamber. And, uh, there were some expressions that I think were quite genuine in that situation. You know, I think that what people lose sight of, uh, and I think it's going on in the U S Congress right now, particularly in the U.S. House, that legislators have two constituencies. They have the constituency that elected them and that will vote on them in two or four or six years. And then the other constituency are the other members of the body, the, the, the fellow representatives or senators. 
And you have to get along with both of those constituencies if you want to get anything done. Um, You know, it's nice being a state senator. You know, the lobbyists laugh at your jokes and and the, (laughs) and the, the doorkeeper opens the door for you and everything like that. But it's not that wonderful. Uh, being a member of the U.S. House or a U.S. Senate, it's the same thing. I mean, you know, they're not that wonderful um, just to hold them, just, just to be holding them. So you, you, you want somebody who wants to get something done. Uh, and the, the, the kind of uh, attitudes that manifest themselves here of late uh, in the last several years um, in the House and in the Senate, U.S. House and Senate, um, it's as though they've lost sight of the fact that, that, uh, your second constituency are the other members that you have to get along with. I, you know, I think you're right, Louis. And I, one of the things that has made it difficult to become good friends with other people besides your own caucus members is the fact that the pressure, particularly in the U S house is to the minute you get elected is to start raising money again for the next campaign. And as a matter of fact, the majority leaders or the caucus chairman, whoever, whoever is running the various chambers, uh, have an arrangement now in which they say to their members, we expect you to pay to spend a certain number of hours a week calling potential contributors. Now, Go ahead. Yeah, and so so the result of this whole thing is that the pressure on raising money is so high, and the reason they the way they do that, of course, they say what you raise we will match with sure. money we get someplace else, and and so it, it's a of a, a not a good situation. Uh, there isn't a lot of time, frankly, I think, in the U.S. House. Now I don't know about the Senate. I can't answer that one. Did is there a particular? person that you for each of you uh, we're here with former lieutenant governor john mutz former state senator louis mayhern veteran strategies presenting the podcast leaders and legends is there a particular person each one of you looked up to in your time in public office either before you got there or or uh, as you were trying to rise louis you know My family's been involved, particularly on my mother's side, been in, involved in politics for quite a while. Um, my, uh, I had an uncle, uh, Paul Cantwell, who served on the uh, city county council, and he served a term in the Indiana House of Representatives. His mother, my maternal grandmother, uh, Edith Cantwell, um, was a Democratic precinct committeeman in Beach Grove in 1932 when Franklin Roosevelt was elected the first time. As a matter of fact, I have a form letter at home uh, from Franklin Roosevelt in the envelope, and the re- return address is the Biltmore Hotel, which is where his headquarters was in 1932, and uh, um, thanking her for her service as a precinct committeeman and, and that sort of thing. Uh, she was uh, she was a precinct committeeman, uh, all the way up until about 1946, I think. Um, and uh, so, you know, I've, I've had that, that kind of uh, background uh, in politics. And, um, and so, and, and you know, the, when, when I would be around uh, my family members who were in politics and I had occasion 
to meet people who were involved in the Democratic Party precinct committee men, ward, they were a ward chairman or something like that. This is when I'm a teenager. Um, I thought that these were very interesting people. Uh, these people had stories to tell and, and things that they cared about, and they just seemed more interesting. Um, and, and your brother uh, served in the Indiana my, House as my, well? My brother, Ed, served in the uh, Indiana House, yeah. Uh, but I told my mother when I was 11 that I wanted to be a politician. I remember asking someone you would know uh, and anyone who's been involved in Indiana politics last 20, 30 years ago, 20 years would know. Um, Miss Katie Mullen, who mm-hmm. re- worked at voter registration for years and years and years. I asked her one time, uh, ardent Democrat from an ardent Democrat family. I'm like, would you ever, did you ever vote for Republican? She goes, no. I said, would you ever vote for Republican? She goes, never. I said, would you have voted for any Republican in history? She goes, absolutely not. I go, Lincoln? She goes, never. (laughs) (laughs) I just was like, I gave her a big hug. I'm like, I get it. I understand your loyalty. Uh, It was amazing how back then with the party system and the machine system, those those loyalty demands seemed to be so strong. Is is that something the both of you experienced as you were growing up that, that... not growing up, but growing up in politics per se, that there was a pressure to be loyal 100% of the time and toe the line and not necessarily reach out and be quote-unquote weakened by a friendship from the other side of the aisle? One thing I'd say about the issue you're raising there, um, an awful lot of people today are too young to know that the political party system and the patronage system as it used to exist, was one of the ways that people from minority communities found themselves on the way up to power. Uh, If you had a neighborhood on the south side, my mother-in-law was what they called WI, West Indianapolis. And uh, people in that neighborhood uh, found their ability to be heard by telling party leaders, we can produce of a majority for it. We can do this or that. And they, in turn, had loyalty to each other. And that's one of the things that's pretty much forgotten now, it seems. You know, we had enclaves of Irish people. I can't name them all now. Louis knows them better than I do. But the point I'm getting at is that these people uh, came to the United States very poor, with very little influence, no leverage in politics or anything else, and the party system was one of the things available to them. And that's something that's largely been, I think, forgotten. Louis? Yeah, well, one of the reasons why the Irish are so stereotypically uh, involved in politics was that uh, when, when the immigrants came here, and there was a huge flood of Irish that came here in the 1840s, late 1840s, because of the famine. But when, they came, when the various uh, immigrant groups came here, the Irish were the, just about the only ones who came here speaking English when they got off the boat. Right. And, since, uh, and mm-hmm. since our system was based on the British system, they understood the system and how it worked. They understood representative government. And, uh, and so the, the Irish were sort of the intermediary uh, between the establishment uh, and the government and, and these other immigrant uh, groups. This should probably be the point where 
I mentioned on Leaders and Legends that uh, I've met Senator Mayhern about a half dozen times, each time at the Golden Ace, the <laughs> magnificent McGinley Bar on the east side run by one of the great families of this city. And uh, Well, you know, Kathleen Mullen's mother that's right. was a McGinley. And, and uh, they... The, my family, I'm the oldest of 10 kids, and, and uh, we grew up on Kelly Street, uh, <laughs> south of uh, Fountain Square. And, uh, and just down the street, there were the Cunninghams, and uh, there were 10 of them. And uh, Kathleen uh, Cunningham uh, was, was uh, one of the older ones. And as a matter of fact, Kathleen Cunningham uh, babysat me and, and uh my some of my younger siblings when my parents you know w- would go out on a date we'd go, we'd go out. and uh, i when i ran for mayor uh, i told this story uh, until kathleen mullen was in the audience and she came up to me afterwards and she said would you please not tell that story anymore <laughs> about how i was your babysitter yeah <laughs> we, we mentioned something you guys both mentioned someone earlier and i want to get to him because then i want to talk a little bit about indianapolis before we in the podcast I never met him. I shook his hand one time, but but I've heard other people talk very admiring, admiringly of Governor Orr. What was he like, John? Well, you know, Bob and I knew each other well because we both served in the state Senate together. And when you live in the Senate for a period of time and you work there a while, you get to know the people pretty well. You get to know who to trust and who has the real knowledge on specific questions. Uh, But I had no idea how much closer I would become to Bob until we served as governor and lieutenant governor. He was a genuine gentleman in every respect. He, uh, of course, is one of the last of the greatest generation. He served in the uh, Japanese theater, whatever the right name of it was, during the Second World War. I remember so well Bob and I walking up to the headquarters of Fuji Heavy Industries in, in Japan. That's the company that owns Subaru in Lafayette. And Bob said, I can't believe I'm going up here, hat in hand, begging these people to invest in Indiana. And it wasn't many years ago that we waged war on each other. And as we did that, we walked, we walked by a Japanese zero that was mounted on a big concrete platform. And of course the Japanese zero was the dominant plane that the Japanese used. We later came back with the Mustang and several others. And uh, it was a sudden moment for me to, to recognize that here's a guy who had been able to turn himself from the hate that this country had for Japan during the war. And, and it was there. Absolutely. And suddenly here he was now in a very different role. And uh, he was a, just a, a wonderful guy to be, be with. I, I don't think there is any lieutenant governor in the history of the United States. Uh, now I sound like Trump. I, I shouldn't be talking <laughs> like that. But, but, but I, I don't think there was any that had a better relationship with the governor than I did. And do you know much about what, and Bob Orr was served as lieutenant governor for eight years under yeah. Governor Otis Bowen. What was their relationship like? Did he learn from that? or? Yes, he learned from that. He and Doc were not that close. Uh, Doc was not close really to anyone in a lot of ways. He had a remarkable memory. 
If you voted against his bill, he remembered 20 years later, all that kind of stuff. Isn't that called Irish Alzheimer's, Mr. Mayhern? Forget everything but the grudges. Yeah. At any rate, they had a good relationship. I shouldn't say it was a nasty one, nothing like that, but not like what Bob and I had. He invited me on a regular basis to come to the residence, and we'd sit and have a beer in front of the fireplace. And we'd talk about what we were working on and so forth. And we'd find, we'd discuss who was for us and who was against us on this issue or that issue. And uh, it was a remarkable kind of period of my life. One thing I want to ask you about also is you both probably knew two very popular, very victorious, very impactful leaders when they were kids or at least young folks. What was it like to see... Evan Bayh become governor and senator? And what was it like to see Mitch Daniels become governor and now president of Purdue University? Louis, go ahead. You probably have no, you probably knew them when they were just either in their teens or early 20s, or in Evan's case, probably just a young kid. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm remembering that uh, Evan was maybe 15 or 16 years old when I was on uh, Birch's staff. I, <clears throat> I didn't seem around very much. Uh, when he came back here after he was out of law school, uh, you know, he was making some noise about uh, being interested in, in running for office. Uh, um, I, I approached him. I and a couple of other people approached him about running for the state Senate uh, in Terre Haute. And uh, he thanked us but said no, that he, he wasn't interested in doing that. And then he ultimately uh, ran for uh, secretary of state. Um, in, I guess it was 86. 86, correct. Um, and so, um, I mean, you know, I, I, uh, I saw him uh, coming up. He was obviously very bright. Um, he enjoyed uh, a lot of popularity, I think, because of his father. Uh, and the by name was magic. Is because, still, because of, but I mean, at the time, was just because magical. Of his, because of his father's uh, uh, work, but I, w- I will tell you that I, I, I knew Mitch when he was on Luger's staff. Um, and because uh, the members of the General Assembly would go out like once a year or something like that to D.C. and, and uh, lobby Congress on various matters. And, um, and, then, and then he came back here and he was working at Lilly's and uh, I was hanging around with uh, Mark Lubbers. And uh, and uh, Lubbers and I and uh, Mitch went to uh, went down to Cincinnati to for a ball game uh, down there and uh, um, I, you know I I, th- I think Mitch Daniels is uh, quite possibly uh, the best governor Indiana has had in my political lifetime um, I I voted for Mitch uh, the second time he ran you know. I raised fifty thousand dollars for Joe Kernan when Mitch ran the first yeah. time, and <laughs> and when Mitch ran for re-election, uh, I voted for him. Uh, I'd like to say something about Mitch in a little different way. My introduction to Mitch was from his mother and father. They were deeply involved in Republican politics as volunteers. They didn't run for office, but they Dottie Daniels, you knew she, she was at every women's event and all that kind of thing. But I really got to know him when he went to work for Keith Buellen. Uh Keith Buellen had a business 
affiliated with his party chairmanship called Campaign Communicators. And his major employee was Mitch. Okay, we're now uh, in a primary election season, and I'm being challenged by Dan Burton for a Senate seat. Oh, okay. And uh, we were, by, through reapportionment, we were put in the same district. And uh, I, I don't think he was in the Senate the, the term just before. He'd been in the House. Dan had become famous in Marion County for his anti-busing stance. He organized rallies all over the county and got a lot of personal attention. So Keith Bielan said to me, John, he says, you, you got a tough primary. I'm going to ask Mitch to work on your campaign. And so in essence, Mitch Daniels, along with my wife, managed my campaign uh, against Dan Burton. And uh, uh, he did it largely from campaign communicator's perspective, but uh, uh, he was deeply involved in that. We did a poll. I can't tell you that it was a really professional poll, but it was a poll. <laughs> and it, it, it showed Burton ahead of me three to one, two months out from that campaign. We won three to two. And I have to give Mitch a good deal of the credit for the way he, we went about it. He does seem to be, and I know he once told me I had moxie, which I thought was probably the greatest compliment I'll ever get in my life. But he does seem to be particularly politically astute. I guess genius probably isn't too strong a term. He just seems to know the right. I was communications director for the Indiana Republican Party in 2006 and 2007 and probably the nadir of his two mm -hmm. terms as governor. But there was just always a sense that he had it all figured out ahead of everybody else and it's just going to be okay. And then. In 2008, obviously, he carries Marion County by about 14,000 votes when Barack Obama carried it by about 130,000 votes. So that tells you a little bit about the, the comeback he had. Is it when you see these younger folks come on and they run and they win? Is there like a special pride? Like you feel like this this kid always this kid already had it, whether it was Evan By or or um, Mitch Daniels or somebody else where it's like this isn't surprising to me. Well, or was it surprising that they decided to run as opposed to just be behind the scenes? Well, in the case of uh, Mitch, uh, for a long time, I didn't think he'd ever run for office himself. And as you probably know, he and Sherry had disagreements over how much of his life he could devote to politics, et cetera. And isn't it true that he was offered the Senate seat in 1988 that Quayle vacated? There was a lot of discussion, and Luger was deeply involved in that in that d discussion. Uh, but that's historic now. Sure. And and uh, so Mitch did decide to run, and I remember him calling me for money the first day, <laughs> and, and 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 he said, uh, "You know what I'm doing? I'm giving up an opportunity to make." And he used a figure X number of dollars a year so that I can run for office. And he says, so I want you to help pay for this. And so I, I did. <laughs> and, did it work? Oh, yeah, well, yeah. Well, see, of course, you, you can tell from what I've already said about him that uh, he was a very good choice, a good candidate. Uh, it's hard for me to know the best governor uh, of the history that I was alive. Uh, Ed Zigner, an old-time political writer, said, Harold Handley should be in that category. I, I didn't know Harold Handley just as a name, as sure. a kid. 
But I, I would have to say that, that Mitch was a great governor. I wanted him to run for president. Now, Mitch probably would have had a tough time winning those, that kind of a campaign. But it seemed to me that if you got a guy like this on the stump and he had a chance to demonstrate his ability to describe the issues, the pros and cons of the issues and so forth, that that would be an extremely useful service to this country. As a political communicator, and halfway is how I make my living as a communicator, I don't know that anyone's better than Mitch Daniels. I think he said, and please correct me, Governor, if you're listening, please correct me, that he thought he could win the nomination, but he would have lost to Obama in 12. I think that that's mm-hmm. his quote. Uh, after, and I want to ask you about this one last thing, then we move on. I ran into John Gregg a few months after he lost uh, the election in 16 to Holcomb. And we had a quick conversation, a couple of minutes, right on the street downtown. And I asked him, I said, did mask did Pence give you a call? And Greg said, yes, he did. He said, at, like he called the Thursday after the election. So Pence is elected vice president. Greg loses to Holcomb. And he said, yes. He goes, Mike called me and was very gracious and very kind about the election result and just asked if I needed anything and if I was okay. Without dwelling, of course, uh, each of you have suffered high-profile losses for big races. Did you call each other? Did you say, Louie, I'm sorry you lost to Steve Goldsmith in 91? Or, Louie, did you call John and go, you know, I'm really sorry you lost in 88? Yeah, we, we really didn't call each other. We did empathize with each other, however, and I, uh, uh, I can tell you that as time went along. I, you, you mentioned John Gregg. I was, John came and wanted to have lunch with me before he decided to run the second time for governor, and uh, he said, should I do it? And I said, well, John, of course, I can't judge this far out, but yes, I think you'd be a good governor of Indiana. And Frank, frankly, I, I still would say that about John. And uh, the conversation went further, and he said, well, you wouldn't support me, would you? And I said, no, I couldn't do that. My party affiliation and loyalty and history, I just wouldn't make sense. Uh, and, and so the, the, there was a kind of understanding there, and I thought he would win that election. Of course, what happened was the Trump phenomenon. Sure. I mean— uh, I, we wouldn't have elected a Republican governor. We wouldn't have elected a Republican senator. All, all, all those elections hinged on the, the Trump margin in Indiana. About two or three weeks before the election in 16, I saw Jim Adderholt, who was chief of staff, former state rep, friend, sure, yeah. to both of yeah, you. Sure. And I asked him, because Holcomb is my contemporary. Governor Holcomb's my contemporary. Yeah. And I agree with you. I think John Gregg would have been and would be a good governor. Uh-huh. But obviously, I'm Team Holcomb. Sure. And I said, well, what's going to happen? And Adderholt, who was certainly involved, said Trump wins by 10 points. We win the governorship. Trump loses or Trump wins by fewer than 10 points. We lose. It's that simple. It's either him. He's the dispositive factor, win or lose. Louis, you ran for mayor in 91. Is it is it a situation where you can't expect your Republican friends to support you? even though they think you would do a good job? How do you square that circle? <laughs> in, uh, in Indiana, <clears throat> you only have to put a name to a political contribution if it's $100 or 
or more, or maybe above a hundred dollars. I can't remember which. And, uh, I will tell you that, uh, that I had at least four or five Republican office holders who gave me $99. (laughs) (laughs) Let's, let's talk just for a few minutes before we wrap up about Indianapolis. You're listening to the leaders and legends podcast presented by veteran strategies. We're here with former Lieutenant governor, John Mutz, former state Senator Louis Mayhern, great friends. We're very grateful to have you on today. If, what about Indianapolis in 2019 would have been most surprising to each of you in Indianapolis of 1969? If I were to say this point to this building or say we hosted this event or we have this reputation, which of any of those facts about modern Indianapolis, 21st century of Indianapolis, which would you find like, wow, I never would have predicted that? Louis, go ahead. I don't know that I could single out one. I will tell you, I think, which is much more interesting and important about downtown Indianapolis and Indianapolis as a whole. Uh, When uh, I had been in the legislature for, I think, maybe four years, something like that, two years, um, I got a call uh, from Jim Morris who uh, wanted to invite me to come to have breakfast with a group of other males, uh, other guys uh, that were involved in politics, Democrat and Republican. Um, And uh, John was uh, one of them. And uh, there was uh, also some people, uh, Herb Simon. uh, There were people from the Hudnut administration, uh, Bob Kennedy, uh, and, and then Bill Crawford, um, and and uh, there were about 14, 15 people um, <clears throat> who came up with the, the name, I guess it was maybe uh, Morris who came up with this name of the city committee. And, um, and we would have breakfast about once a month. And um, the and he was Morris was with the endowment at the time and the Lilly endowment, the Lilly endowment, and and uh, he would bring in speakers, uh, people to sit down with us, and have breakfast, and and uh, and talk about uh, what makes a great city and that sort of thing, and um, and out of that, out of that came uh, one of the very first early things was. Uh, uh, bricks on the circle and yeah to to put these bricks and and to fix up the monument circle it it was kind of getting a little uh ragged around the edges and everything and to to restore the circle and so you know and and uh they were very careful to include legislators on in that because they had to have legislators you know um the dome stadium um came out of meetings uh, that that uh, we had, that the city committee had. D- don't forget that when we built the Dome Stadium, we didn't have a franchise. Correct. And, and uh, um, White River State Park uh, came out of uh, that, uh, that committee of uh, people sitting down and sort of dreaming. Um, I never imagined. I mean, I, I knew that, you know, we, we had some oomph in that room, and and we ought to be able to get some things done, passing tax increases and that sort of thing. Uh, 
but I never imagined that it that would have the kind of impact that it had, particularly in the number of young people who wanted to move downtown. Um, and I mean that that I think is is probably what is uh, I find most gratifying uh, is that and and I, I will tell you when I was first elected to the to the Senate and it's it's 1977 1978 Ed Tracy friend very good friend of mine we were high school classmates and everything we our wives he and I and our wives used to take the train maybe twice a year or something like that up to Chicago and spend the weekend up there and then come go up on Friday afternoon and come back on Sunday afternoon. When we would come back on Sunday afternoon, there was no place to eat dinner in downtown Indianapolis. There was no place that we could, we get off the train, you know, we had to go home. Because there weren't any restaurants in downtown Indianapolis open on Sunday afternoon, and that's one of the reasons for the for the and to get Lieutenant Governor's comments. But I've asked that of the people who've been on the podcast so far are kind of in the same situation. They came, you know, they either grew up here or worked here for the last forty or fifty years, and they tell the same story. Like you really can't understand how just flat out languid and flaccid and and boring downtown Indianapolis was fifty years ago, forty five, forty years ago. Lieutenant Governor, what would what would that well, be for you? The well, one- I, I guess the best way to say that is that uh, the vitality of downtown and that area would be the biggest difference. You ask, what would the big difference be? Uh, and of course, that includes crowds in downtown Indianapolis. It includes Super Bowls. It includes this the myriad of activities. But I, I think the Louis mentioned the the city committee. Uh, we were a group of individuals who largely were considered, quote, on our way up in a yeah. way. Yeah. You know, we, we were, they were guys from Lilly and they were guys from they were uh, other. Tier, the yeah, tier. that's right. <laughs> and, and we were kind of second tier. Uh, now, I wouldn't say Herb Simon was second no, tier, no, but, I, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but at, at any rate, I think the point I make is that <clears throat> we wanted to see Indianapolis be a heck of a lot better. So we voluntarily paid our own way to visit other cities. And we, we went to six or seven that I can think of. Atlanta was one. Uh, we, we went to Ottawa. Uh, uh, not Ottawa. Um, uh, Toronto. Toronto in, in, uh, in Canada. Uh, we took a look at the things that were going on in these cities and then decided whether these are things we wanted to support and, and make a commitment to. And it's interesting because other cities are doing that to Indianapolis now. There's yeah, an are. article in the IBJ about the Sports Corp, and we interviewed uh, Ryan Vaughn, uh, the head of the Sports Corp. Yeah. He was talking about that, that up-and-coming cities now are looking at us like, okay, how did Indianapolis do it? Yeah, that's right. And, and the city committee always comes up as one of the major factors. Now, what I want to point out is that during the time we were meeting, it was never publicized that we meet, that we were meeting. We, mm. we, in fact, we didn't have any minutes. We didn't keep records, uh, but we voluntarily got together because we cared. And, and the other thing was, it was great fun. I mean, we had a great time doing all these things. And, and I guess what I'm, I'm really saying about this is that that kind of spirit started originally, I like to think, with two political movements. One was the action committee in the Republican Party, and the other one was the Young Turks who were the Jim Beatty reformers when he was the, the Democratic County chairman. Mm-hmm. 
And and Jim and his colleagues had a vision not too dissimilar from ours. I mean, in fact, they would have unified the government in Marion County like Unigub, but they would have done it in a different way. They, you know, they wouldn't have done it so that we had a majority for a long period of time. You know, P. Yeah. McAllister said that to me, uh, uh-huh. the legendary uh, philanthropist and industrialist and yeah, well, uh, he, civic he, leader. He, he was he, part of that movement. Well, he said that when he was president of the Capital Improvement Board, he said nobody ever mentioned politics. He goes like, seriously, the Republicans didn't say we can't do that. That helps Democrats. And the Democrats can't say we can't do that. That helps Republicans. He goes, we did all these things. And he was cap. He was president of the capital improvement board when the Colts came, when the Hoosier dome was built, he says that never came up. It was all about Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's entirely gone away. I mean, what, what, what Greg Ballard did and tried to do, isn't that much different than what Bart Peterson tried to do. And so, I think that spirit is still there. I want to ask particularly you, Lieutenant Governor Mutz, before we go to our last questions. I have said this. I said this at lunch earlier today. And please correct me if I'm wrong because I brag on you on this all the time. So correct. here's your chance to say that I'm wrong. I've called you the most unsung leader in the history of Indianapolis because I keep hearing from people who were around that time, whether it's P.E. McAllister or Jim Morris, how crucial you were towards the growth of education in this city. How big a role did you play or did you play a role in what has become the modern IUPUI? Well, yes, I was, I tell you, I'm one of these guys who's lived long enough (laughs) to have been present for a number of movements and changes. And I have not always been a leader of the movement, maybe a member of the committee that did the movement or was responsible for it, but I was around for the creation of Unigov. I helped write the bill, get it passed. Uh, then I had a chance to be part of the city, city committee. And, of course, one of the things that came up at the famous meeting at John Burkhart's house was the meeting was held originally to create a university of Indianapolis. And our goal was to have a state-supported new institution in Indianapolis. We said you can't be a great city without a great public university. Well, at that same meeting, uh, there were 10 of us there, uh, somehow or another we started talking about unified government, and we said, well, let's do that too. (laughs) And and so so that's what What happened. And what I'm trying to say to you is – I appreciate your, your, your comment, but I'm just lucky that I've been present all during this time period and in many cases active in, in getting them done. And so, uh, would you say that, uh, Mr. Mutz is being a bit modest? I think he's being a bit modest based on how other people I know of that generation talk about his contribution to this city. Well, he's being especially modest relative, uh, to the way most elected officials I shouldn't say most elected officials. <laughs> Some elected officials. Yeah. Uh, there, there are people in this business. I, you know, I'm sorry to say, are full of themselves. Uh, I've never, never experienced that with John. <laughs> we come to the end of the podcast. It's the five questions we ask the same five questions of every guest, and so of every guest or guest in this case. So we're going to start with. Uh, Senator Mayhern, so I'll ask you, then we'll get an answer from uh, John, and then we'll go forward. So, first question. What was the first job you had? 
I was a caddy at Meridian Hills. And uh, my, my family moved off the south side uh, in April of 1957. I was just finishing my soph- sophomore year at Cathedral. And uh, we had to move to the north side uh, <clears throat> because uh, we, needed, we needed a bigger house. And, uh, For all those kids? Yeah, and and uh, they had bigger homes over in Garfield Park, but my dad couldn't afford one of those, and so we moved to Forty Second and Broadway. Uh, and my dad could afford that that house because it was a changing neighborhood. Hmm. Well, my first real job in which I got a salary and got paid, I was a copy e- editor and member of the copy desk at the in- Indianapolis News, and I did this while I was still in college. And uh, I got paid a dollar ten an hour for that job. Did it? Uh, did you meet the Poliums at the time? I mean, was it? Oh, did you? Did oh, yeah. You... you have to understand. Back in those days, uh, Gene Gene Pulliam uh, was the managing editor of the news. He was on the scene every day, mm-hmm. and if you made a mistake, he knew about it and he talked to you. you know. <laughs> uh, so I, I I have to tell you. I don't want to belabor this, but a copy editor at that time, one of their jobs was to take the wire services that came in from the three major wires, or AP, UP, and, and INS, and take the stories on the same subject, put them in a pile, and give them to a writer. And then they would do a story, which was a compilation of the three wire services. Well, one day <clears throat> I clipped a very important story, Cover, put it on the desk of an individual who I thought was going to make the story or write the story. Well, it happened that guy was off that day. And what happened was that the news didn't have a story on that subject. But the Indianapolis Times, which was the other afternoon newspaper, oh. did. And you uh, thought a bomb had gone <laughs> off in, in that city room. Gene, Gene said, what the hell happened? How, how did we miss this story? You know, and of course, <laughs> it was it was my my fault. So that that was my first job. What was your first concert, Louis? First concert you ever went to? You know, I have to fess up that uh, I've probably only been to three or four concerts in my life. Uh, I was I was never I mean I listened to rock and roll and all that sort of stuff on the radio but uh, um, I I, uh, I I have no idea I I just you know music it was kind of it's kind of interesting because I music has never been a, an important part of my life I mean I enjoy it uh, but. Uh, but you want to call yourself a huge fan of it, like a lot of people are. Well, that's right. That's right. I mean, you know, it, if uh, we, my, my, some of my siblings and I were participated in a charity fundraising uh, trivia contest not too long ago, and we had to recruit some people who were under forty, uh, <laughs> because the the last one I the last thing I remember is uh, Rolling Stones, you know. <laughs> Well, John, what was your first concert? First concert, I was in the third grade, and uh, Fabian Savitsky, who was longtime concert master of the Indianapolis Symphony, regularly held concerts for school children in the old Cato Tabernacle. Hmm. Now, the old Cato Tabernacle has been long since gone in Indianapolis. 
and they bust in school kids from great schools all over Indianapolis, and they had a chance to listen to genuine symphony music. And I remember Fabian Savitsky said, and he was a big, mean-looking man, and he said, we have two rules today. One is you do not talk while the orchestra is playing, and two is you do not move from your seat while you are here. And <laughs> that my first concert. I went home, told my mother, and she said, well, that's wonderful. Would you like to go to a real symphony? Uh, I mean, concert, you know, in the, and I said, yeah. And, and so it, that year I actually went. And I was able not to talk during the symphony <laughs> I and feeling, stay in my seat. I got a feeling we're not going to have that answer duplicated in any future <laughs> podcasts. Uh, Louis, if you could recommend any book, which book would you recommend? I would recommend uh, a book called The Brothers, uh, written by a guy by the name of uh, Kinzer. And it's the story of the, uh, of the in, in the mid-1950s, when the Secretary of State of the United States and the Director of the CIA yeah. were brothers, and John uh, Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles, Alan Dulles, mm-hmm. and and uh, about the uh, their policies and the actions that they took um, when during their time in office, and and how we pay for those policies yet today. John, I'm going to kind of throw you a. a surprise and it's the samuel adams book and the reason i cite that is that uh, he obviously wasn't president he was the son of a president and in that book he describes his father's visits to europe now this was a time period in in which uh, uh, the united states was not the leader of the free world yeah. <laughs> when john adams was sent overseas yeah. after independence had been won in 1783 that is exactly minister. right mm-hmm. and and that book is an amazing insight into not just a father and son but also in, into how europe played out a role in the united states you know in that you begin to get a real understanding of how important france was in the history of the united states i doubt if many people think much about that i don't remember ever being taught that in grade school uh but i i doubt if we'd be here if france hadn't intervened certainly yorktown where all the american uniforms were paid for by the french and the yeah. fleet was french mm-hmm. and the vast you know huge contingent of, of french soldiers of uh, the battle of yorktown where the british surrendered and basically ended the war uh, number four if you could witness any event in history louis which event would you choose? Be in the room, be on the field, be in the plane, see it with your own eyes. Hmm. I would. I would probably say the uh, the flag raising at Mount Sarabachi, Iwo Jima, February of for February of forty five. Yeah, February or April, something like April that. April is Okinawa, and February okay, is right, yeah. 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 To be there to see, on uh, Iwo Jima when they raised the flag on Mount Suribachi, just the to, famous. Just to, just to, to see it. Just we should note that, that. Uh, State Senator Mayhern is a proud Marine. Yeah. So I can see that. I can see that. John? Well, you know, I have to confess to you that I'm one of these people who still gets a tear in his eyes when I stand for the Star Spangled Banner. For some reason or another, I it, it's still has an enormous emotional tug on me, started during the Second World War, uh, 
And I guess if I had to, if I had an opportunity, I know this may sound funny. I would like to have witnessed the ceremony in Japan where Japan uh, ended the Second World War, their part of it, and agreed to surrender. So September of 45 on the USS Missouri, on the Missouri. when uh, yeah, on the Missouri. MacArthur. Yeah, and I remember seeing the, the pictures of that and so forth. Yeah, that's an event that would have been an unbelievable thing to see. Mm. Is, is that what Greg, Ball- Greg Ballard chose the, chose, the same, chose the same thing? He did. Uh, uh, huh. Another proud Marine. Yeah. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone in the world right now, Louis, who would you choose? No, and no family members. We've decided to exclude <laughs> yeah. family members. Just a couple of hours off the record, hanging out at dinner. Anybody. Um. Tracy will be mad if you don't choose him. <laughs> I've, I can have Tracy. I can have dinner with Tracy anytime I want. <laughs> yeah, I was say, is that rare? <laughs> uh, I. There's an awful lot going on in Europe right now. Uh, I think Angela Merkel would be a very interesting person. Chancellor of Germany. The Chancellor mm-hmm. of Germany, and and the sort of the outgoing leader of the European Union. Uh, I think she is like I think anybody who follows those events would have to concede that she has been the leader for the last ten or. 14 years, something like that. Stabilizing influence. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and stood up for human decency when, uh, these populist movements, uh, were were barking at her, uh, and her party, uh, and stood up for, uh, rational, uh, the rational protection of, uh, immigrants. Uh, Good. I'm going to throw you another sideline curve, I guess. Um, is Henry K- K- Kissinger still alive? He is still alive. He is. He is. Well, yeah. that's the guy I'd choose. Now, why would I choose him? It's because, I like, assuming his memory is still good, which I don't know, I would like to hear his take on the historic events that he participated in, his relationship with Richard Nixon, uh, his involvement in, in a whole variety of other things. And the reason I say this is I, I, I met him once when he came to speak in Indianapolis at a oh. big Republican fundraiser. And it was, believe it or not, I can't believe it, but it was held at the state fairgrounds, hardly a <laughs> prestigious <laughs> location. Hardly Kissinger-esque. Yeah, and, and, and as I think, I want to say it's in the cattle barn, but it wasn't that bad, but it was at, <laughs> it was at the state fairgrounds. And for some reason, I was one of a group of young people who were assigned to greet him and all that sort of thing. I had a chance to talk to him and, and uh, I've always been entranced by the guy. He, he was one of those people who uh, seemingly had an insight that was a little more in depth than most people. Well, he certainly, I mean, to your point about Chancellor Merkel, I mean, talk about president at the creation. I mean, he was, mm-hmm. He seems to be someone who it's it's a two sided coin. There are a lot of people who credit him with a lot of the detente in the early seventies, and then a lot of people who really question his methods and his Machiavellian sort of uh, right. way of looking at things. Well, some people also give him a lot of credit for Nixon's trip to China. You know, mm-hmm. the, correct, yeah, correct. The opening up of the relationship with China, 
that was a big a big deal. He does seem to personify the fact that deviousness and brilliance can go hand in hand. Well, there's something else he personifies. You remember later in his life, he married a much younger yes. woman. Nancy. Said, is, it, is it Nancy? Yeah, Nancy, Nancy somebody. Yeah. And, and they ask him, uh, how, how do you account for that? He says, power is the ultimate <laughs> aphrodisiac. <laughs> that is a perfect way to end this podcast. We are absolutely thrilled to have both of you come here. Uh, Former Lieutenant Governor John Mutz, former State Senator Louis Mayhern, good friends, been very gracious with your time. We cannot say enough for how much you've done for this city, for your fellow Hoosiers. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends podcast presented by Veteran Strategies. My name is Robert Vane, and thank you very much for listening. And if you see Senator Mayhern or you see Lieutenant Governor Mutz at any time in your lives from now on, extend your hand and tell them thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Veteran Strategies.